The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Top Doc says it's going to get worse. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, March 12th, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. New Rochelle, New York, right outside New York City, has, according to Governor Cuomo, probably the largest cluster in the U.S. of coronavirus cases at well over 100. More than half the state's cases are in Westchester County, where New Rochelle is now inside a one-mile radius containment zone. New Rochelle is partially locked down for the next two weeks. Hundreds of people have self-quarantined there. There are no checkpoints. People can come and go, but schools are closed, businesses are closed, worship services are canceled. The National Guard is delivering food to the residents and spraying public areas with disinfectant. Governor Andrew Cuomo calls it a matter of life and death. It won't be the last community to react this way to the spreading virus. This is what the experts have warned us about, even if they had to shout to be heard over what the president's been saying. Yesterday, after much reluctance, the World Health Organization officially declared the coronavirus outbreak to be a global pandemic. Now remember, the word pandemic refers to the spread of the disease, not its severity. For 80% who get it, it will not be life-threatening. But for 20%, especially older Americans and those with pre-existing conditions, the virus is too often deadly. And there is a ray of hope this morning. In China, the number of new cases is falling fast, and a leading respiratory doctor there says the pandemic could be over by June if the right steps are taken. Nevertheless, at a closed-door meeting yesterday, the attending physician for both houses of Congress and the U.S. Supreme Court told staffers that he expects between 70 and 150 million Americans will become infected with the virus. Tuesday morning, respected CDC doctor Anthony Fauci told the public, As a nation, we can't be doing the kinds of things we were doing a few months ago. You have to start taking seriously what you can do now for when the infections come. And they will come, he said, adding, It's going to get worse. In an Oval Office address to the nation last night, Trump announced a 30-day ban on travel from Europe, even though the virus has already spread to the U.S. and around the world. And without explanation, the president excluded the United Kingdom from the European ban. He announced no plans to stop the spread of coronavirus here in the U.S. And without mass testing, we are flying blind. Trump implemented the ban against the advice of U.S. health experts and the World Health Organization. They argue that travel restrictions could do more harm than good by hindering medical supply chains and information sharing. The U.S. Travel Association says the ban could cost the U.S. some $3 billion. Overseas stock markets began to plunge after Trump's speech, and U.S. markets are expected to follow today after another huge loss yesterday, and layoffs have begun in the U.S. travel industry. Trump also announced the European travel ban without consulting or even giving a heads-up to the leaders of European nations who are this morning condemning the ban. And then the White House had to walk back Trump's declaration, saying the travel ban exemptions also include all permanent legal U.S. residents and some family members. In other words, the ban was not as drastic as he'd made it sound in his Oval Office speech. What the president did not do is declare a national emergency that would have freed up as much as $40 billion to help fight a pandemic that the $8 billion approved this week by Congress will not cover. Two dozen states, meanwhile, have declared their own emergencies, but Trump ignored advice to declare a national emergency to help cover the costs. 
What Trump did not address is the issue of testing, as the U.S. lags behind less developed countries in testing its people. What Trump did not do was put the nation at ease or convince anyone that he has a handle on this. There are, as of the filing of this report, about 1,300 cases of COVID-19 across the U.S. in 44 states. Ten Americans are in serious or critical condition with the disease. But with so few tests being performed, the number of cases in the U.S. could be around 9,000, actually, according to an analysis by Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. The World Health Organization was reporting nearly 127,000 cases in 118 countries with over 4,700 deaths worldwide. If President Trump had not implemented travel restrictions on China and other countries nearly two weeks ago, the U.S. coronavirus spread would have likely been a lot worse. Trump was being pushed by some of his advisors not to slap travel restrictions on the country where the new coronavirus had emerged, especially at such a sensitive time in trade talks between the U.S. and China. Even health officials were against the travel restrictions, saying they're not only ineffective, they can limit the movement of doctors trying to contain the disease. As the disease spread, health officials were for the restrictions, saying it would buy them some time to implement prevention and testing. And although Trump was being warned by some advisors about the damage the travel restrictions might have on Wall Street, he decided in favor of them early on after Health Secretary Alex Azar went to Trump to say, quote, the situation has changed radically. Every day, 23,000 visitors were coming here from China. Mostly shutting down that travel would reduce the spread of the disease from that continent to this one. Health officials now agree that Trump was right about the early travel restrictions on China, right to declare a public health emergency, and right to sign a bill spending $8.3 billion on the crisis, even though Trump's public statements have been confused, to put it mildly. What follows are a series of Trump's own words about the virus. By April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. We have it under control. It's going to be just fine. He said hundreds of thousands of people, quote, get better by going to work. He called the World Health Organization's official death rate of 3.4% a false number because he had, quote, a hunch based on a lot of conversations with a lot of people that do this, end quote. He said the spread of COVID-19 is not inevitable and wrongly predicted the number of cases in the U.S. was going to go very substantially down. His claim that the number would be, quote, down close to zero was as bizarre as it was untrue. The number is now over 1,300. He has consistently misstated the number of cases and where the numbers are heading, as well as misstating the number of deaths. He falsely claimed that, quote, anyone who wants a test can get a test. Wrong. A doctor has to order it, according to Trump's own Health and Human Services Secretary, who added, what he meant to say is, we're not in the way of that. After Trump falsely claimed there were plenty of test kits to go around, Vice President Mike Pence, the man Trump had put in charge of the crisis, was saying, quote, we don't have enough tests. Tuesday, the head of the CDC told Congress that even with more test kits, there's not enough staff nor equipment to process those tests. Without testing, we may never know the actual numbers. Without early testing, we are weeks behind in our response. To this day, while tens of thousands are being tested in other countries, fewer than 10,000 have been conducted here in the U.S., despite a late February promise to test 10,000 every day. Trump 
falsely called the coronavirus tests beautiful and perfect. As perfect, he said, as his phone call to Ukraine that got him impeached. Not having enough tests also means fewer reported cases, making the pandemic look less severe. He falsely said that a vaccine would be available in just a few months when it's actually well over a year away at best, according to his own government experts. Trump has referred to criticisms and even news coverage of his administration's response to the pandemic as a hoax and fake news at a time when many of his followers have taken the position that any concern about the disease is a hoax. The president who called climate change a hoax claimed forest fires could be limited by raking the forests, predicted that a hurricane would hit Alabama, wondered if a hurricane could be stopped with a nuclear weapon, claimed that windmills cause cancer, declared that exercise can shorten your life and that he is the healthiest man to ever occupy the White House, was now claiming, quote, a natural instinct for science, end quote. He falsely claimed that an Obama administration policy had hindered his ability to respond to the viral spread and falsely claimed that he had reversed that policy regarding FDA approval of coronavirus test kits. He has incorrectly referred to the virus as a flu, even calling it corona flu at one point and suggesting that a solid flu vaccine would take care of it. It won't. He was wrong again. But Donald John Trump didn't seem to know that people die from the flu. I never heard those numbers, said Trump, adding, I would have been shocked. I would have said, does anybody die from the flu? I didn't know people died from the flu. The Washington Post reports that Trump's own grandfather died from the flu in the 1918 pandemic. If only the president had known that about a member of his own family or about his own family medical history. He showed up this past Friday at the Centers for Disease Control headquarters in Atlanta wearing a 2020 campaign hat that read, Keep America Great. I like this stuff, said Trump, apparently referring to the medical science focus on COVID-19. I really get it, Trump bragged. People are really surprised I understand this stuff. Every one of these doctors said, how do you know so much about this? Trump answered the question himself by saying, maybe I have a natural ability. Trump further explained that his uncle, who taught at MIT, was a, quote, great super genius. After Vice President Mike Pence praised the handling of the crisis by Washington State's Governor Jay Ensley, Trump reverted to insult, saying, I told Mike not to be complimentary of that governor because that governor is a snake. Let me just tell you, we have a lot of problems with that governor. So Mike may be happy with him, but I'm not, okay? Inslee responded on Twitter, writing, I just wish the president and vice president could get on the same page. And while Pence was arranging for Americans to disembark from a cruise ship, Trump argued they should be kept on that ship and not brought to shore. Again, Trump's concerns were about public image, not public health. He said of the ship's passengers, I like the numbers being where they are. I don't need the numbers to double because of a ship that wasn't our fault. He wanted to keep those sick Americans on that ship to keep his coronavirus numbers low because it's not about health with Trump. It's about appearances in this election year. If there is a clear message from our government's top doctors and scientists about this coronavirus, it's being muddled by the president himself as he tries to run for re-election. And unlike his past challenges, this one cannot be tweeted away. There is no individual to insult or attack. He cannot just call COVID-19 a derisive nickname to shut it down. He accuses Democrats of blowing it out of proportion. Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy responded on CBS saying, 
If you really want to talk about what's going to potentially create panic in this country, it's an administration that's just not being straight with the American public about the extent of this pandemic. And as former Vice President Dick Cheney's cardiologist put it to the Washington Post, when the story is finally written, we'll come to understand that tens of thousands of lives were placed at risk because of a political decision made by the president. On February 13th, when Health Secretary Alex Azar told the Senate committee that the CDC had started working with health departments in five cities to test for coronavirus, he either did or did not know that those city health departments had heard nothing about this, nor that the test kits they'd been sent didn't work. From the beginning of the crisis, the administration's response has been hampered by its own mixed messages and misinformation from the president, by the soft peddling of the crisis, and by skepticism, debate, and power struggles within the administration. At first, Trump was irritated with his health secretary for steering him away from the e-cigarette topic and onto what Trump saw as a controversial political issue when it was actually a public health issue. Between all these things and the faulty test kits, the administration's response was delayed by several crucial weeks, by as much as a month, in fact. Things could be much worse than they are, but they could have been much better. Multiple experts say the U.S. should have already made sure that hospitals and local health departments had the money, the training, and the protective clothing they need to respond. The White House got its first notice about COVID-19 in early January. By late February, it was saying the virus was contained, which delayed even further the preparedness of hospitals and local health departments across the country. Trump had made it more difficult for the folks on the front lines of the crisis to make a case for more money after decades of budget cuts at your local health department. It wasn't until the end of February that the administration brought in the FDA, which had been needed weeks before that, to coordinate with drug and medical supply companies on ways to diagnose and treat the illness and to develop a vaccine to protect us against the virus. Hospitals could have already been stocked with masks, gowns, goggles, booties, gloves, and respirators, stocked the way they should be for a pandemic. The Washington Post reports that the national stockpile of face masks has not been properly replenished since 2009. That stockpile currently has 30 million masks. Experts say we need three and a half billion of them. When the administration first asked for just over $2 billion to fight this viral spread, it was billions short and about a month later than it should have come. According to an Associated Press report, when the Centers for Disease Control told the White House it should recommend that the elderly and people with underlying conditions not fly on airliners, the administration decided to keep the public in the dark on that to try to mitigate the damage to the commercial airline industry. Public health be damned. It took a literal act of Congress to get the Trump administration to spend over $8 billion on the coronavirus fight without robbing from other health programs. The delayed response to the crisis finds hospitals still unprepared. A nationwide nurses group surveyed more than 6,500 members to find that fewer than half had been given information about COVID-19 from their hospitals. More than a third of the nurses said their hospitals had not given them access to the N95 respirators needed to treat the patients with severe shortness of breath. And only 27% of nurses had access to powered air purifying respirators. A third of the nurses say they have not been trained in the use of personal protective equipment. 
the budget cuts at your local health department began after the Wall Street disaster of 2008, and unlike other government programs, their funding was never restored. It boils down to a diminished capacity to protect the community, says the head of the National Association of County and City Health Officials. Quoting the head of the nonprofit Trust of America's Health, a forest fire is not the right time to start hiring firemen and buying fire trucks and equipment, adding, it's too late. Nearly a billion of that $8.3 billion authorized by Congress will go to local health officials across the country. But for now, local health departments are still overwhelmed between coordinating with state and federal officials and by questions from private enterprise. In Washington State, hotel workers were asking how to clean the room of someone who's infected. A skiing company wanted to know what officials thought of its pandemic response plan, and convention planners wanted to know if they should cancel their upcoming gatherings. The economic effects of the virus crisis first appeared in the Dow Jones with a 1,000-point drop on February 24th, followed by an off-and-on freefall that brought the Dow down by a total of 3,000 points to the point that trading was paused on Monday of this week to keep it from dropping more. As the New York Times put it, there is nothing investors hate more than uncertainty. Right now, that's all there is. On February 27th, the market lost more points in one day than it ever had, dropping nearly 1,200 points. Yesterday, it lost 1,400, setting a new record. The yields on government treasury bonds fell to a half percent, the lowest they've ever been, something we didn't even see during the Great Recession of 2008. After an up day on Tuesday, the Dow plummeted again yesterday, down 20% from its high point, throwing Wall Street into a bear market all based on a coronavirus concerns, and ending an 11-year run as a bull market. J.P. Morgan is telling its clients to expect a rough six months ahead, putting the odds of a recession at 90%. By Monday morning of this week, markets around the world were tanking, and that drove oil prices down by more than 25%. And with that, Saudi Arabia set off a price war with Russia by increasing production, even as demand for its oil and its byproducts was falling. People worldwide were traveling less, costing the oil industry billions in airline fuel alone. Good for consumer, tweeted Trump. Gasoline prices coming down, he tweeted, apparently unaware that this too was a sign of a coming recession. Even as the stock market tumbled on that news, Trump blamed the oil price war and, quote, the fake news for the market drop. Later that same day, the S&P 500 fell nearly 8%, 2,000 points, to its lowest level since the 2008 financial crisis when another Republican was president. The market opened on Tuesday by recovering nearly half of Monday's losses on Trump's proposal of a cut in payroll taxes and some kind of relief for hourly workers who will be hard hit by the socioeconomic effects of the virus, especially those with no sick leave. But many Republicans believe that won't work. They're against the tax cut. No agreement came out of a Tuesday meeting between Trump and congressional Republicans. Democrats disagree with the tax cut and have their own proposals to stabilize the economy, to guarantee sick leave to those without it, and to assure health care for those who fall ill to COVID-19. The House is voting on a coronavirus relief plan today. Albeit separately, both sides are looking for answers. Both the House and Senate are scheduled to be in recess next week. 
But that could change considering the circumstances. California's Dianne Feinstein has proposed shutting down the U.S. Capitol. The Capitol is shutting down its public tours through the end of the month. In fact, as of this morning, the U.S. Capitol and House and Senate office buildings are now closed to the public until April 1st to try to prevent the further spread of coronavirus. It was on March 5th that we saw U.S. airlines responding to the crisis, suspending travel to various destinations, cleaning the planes more thoroughly, and making their reservations more flexible. The changes include waivers for changes and cancellations on some tickets and suspending change fees and a few ticket refunds. Airline executives met with the president as their nearly empty planes were landing at virtually deserted airports. It was a somber meeting. Airline stocks were among those that dropped most sharply in the stock market slide. Airline stocks were down by as much as 40%. The airline executives were suddenly expecting to lose as much as $113 billion in revenues this year. It is the worst financial crisis the airlines have ever faced since the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, and it took years for the industry to recover from that. One CEO said the crisis, quote, has a 9-11-like feel. The airlines, too, were unprepared for this. On Thursday of last week, if you could get through, the recording at Delta Airlines informed callers of a three-hour wait to speak with a representative and that they should hang up if their flight wasn't leaving within the next 72 hours. United says it's cutting its number of international flights by 20% in April and that it's likely to cut domestic flights as well with even more cuts in May. JetBlue says it's cutting its mostly domestic service by about 5% and both airlines have announced hiring freezes. People over age 60 were being discouraged from getting on an airplane unless it was absolutely necessary. Amtrak reports its ridership has fallen sharply this week. Cancellations are up 300% and bookings have fallen. Amtrak's looking to lose several hundred million dollars and looking at service cuts and layoffs. Americans were also being advised to stop taking ocean cruises and tourism in the U.S. and elsewhere was in harm's way. The White House spoke of tax breaks for the travel industry as the airline cutbacks threatened destinations across the country and around the world, including resorts, trade shows, convention venues, music festivals, casinos, hotels, and restaurants. The Hilton hotel chain expects to lose $50 million over the next several months. San Francisco's biggest convention venue, the Moscone Center, will lose $138 million thanks to canceled and rescheduled gatherings. Austin, Texas had to give up $356 million when it canceled the South by Southwest Tech Festival. Chicago's expecting to lose 100,000 visitors just this month. San Francisco is banning gatherings of 50 people or more in its public venues. Miami has canceled its three-day ultra music festival, and California's Coachella Music Fest is now postponed to October. Pearl Jam has canceled the first leg of its upcoming tour. Neil Young has scrapped his Crazy Horse tour with his older audience in mind. Miley Cyrus has canceled her Australian tour. New York is postponing its annual auto show. Boston has canceled its big annual St. Patrick's Day parade, as have the cities of New York, Dallas, and Chicago. Even Ireland has canceled its St. Patrick's Day parades. It appears Trump resorts and hotels would benefit from the proposed emergency tax breaks were they put into effect. 
But this crisis arrived just as the Trump Organization was trying to sell its Washington, D.C. location. This makes that sale a little more difficult. Two TV game shows that share the same studio, Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, have begun taping episodes for the first time ever without a studio audience, partly to protect Jeopardy host Alex Trebek, who has stage 4 cancer. Now, the TV talk shows are following suit, and starting next week, that will include the late-night shows. The shows on Broadway are now offering deep discounts on tickets to Mockingbird, West Side Story, Virginia Woolf, and Book of Mormon. Actors Tom Hanks and his wife Rita Wilson both have coronavirus, and they only know that because there is widespread testing in Australia, where Hanks is filming a new movie and where there are 140 cases. The Hanks might not have been able to get a test here in the U.S. Ms. Wilson is reportedly suffering from fever and chills. Both are in the hospital. Hanks has type 2 diabetes, putting him at higher risk. The NCAA championship games, March Madness, will be less mad this year without fans in the stands. The games will go on, but only officials and the families of the players will be allowed into the arenas. The NBA has suspended its season until further notice now that a Utah Jazz player has tested positive. The NHL, which plays in many of those same arenas, is expected to take action today. No word yet on Major League Baseball games, which are scheduled to begin in less than a month. The Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo has been canceled. San Francisco, Ohio, and Washington are limiting or banning large public gatherings of all kinds. Amtrak, airlines, and cruise lines are now offering deep discounts as the cancellations mount. The urban poor will be the hardest hit by this pandemic, but suburban folk are vulnerable too since most don't have paid leave from work. 32 million Americans have no paid sick days, and those making 10 bucks an hour or less with no employer health insurance can't afford to take even a day off work. That includes some $8 an hour health care workers. By going to work, they risk exposing others to the virus. Several states and cities have passed laws requiring employers to provide paid sick leave. Paid sick leave is one of the policy options laid out for the president, backed up by an emergency aid to small businesses to cover the expense. That advice he's decided to take. Democrats in Congress are pushing for paid sick leave, along with enhanced unemployment insurance, expanded food stamps, expanded school lunch programs, free coronavirus testing, and new anti-price gouging rules. The coronavirus disease got more real over the weekend when word came that it had entered the nation's capital. A Marine in his 50s was hospitalized for it in suburban Fairfax County, Virginia. A prominent Episcopal priest in D.C. has it, and organizers of the annual conservatives convention known as CPAC announced that someone attending that gathering had also developed COVID-19 symptoms. Now, the National Cathedral and hundreds of other churches in D.C., Northern Virginia and suburban Maryland are closed, skipping services for the next two Sundays. The mayor of D.C. has declared an emergency. The White House rushed out a statement to say, although Trump was at the CPAC convention, he did not have contact with the person who's infected, an unidentified man from New Jersey. Trump was, however, photographed shaking hands with the organizer of the event who'd had direct contact with the infected attendee, Organizer Matt Schlapp says he also shook hands with Vice President Mike Pence and other Trump administration officials, but that he used a lot of hand sanitizer. 
It was there that then-White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney told attendees at CPAC to turn off their TVs, saying there was just too much coverage of this coronavirus thing and that it was nothing more than an attempt to bring down this president, a sentiment echoed loudly at Fox News. Yes, Pence was at CPAC along with Mulvaney, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump Jr., and Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, the wife of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and thousands of others, including Senator Ted Cruz, who's gone into self-quarantine at home, and Florida's Matt Gates, who had mocked the concern over coronavirus by wearing a gas mask on the floor of the United States House of Representatives as it voted to spend that $8.3 billion on fighting the virus. Right after Gates' gas mask stunt, one of his own constituents died from the disease. After spending the weekend with the president, Gates flew back to D.C. with Trump aboard Air Force One. Gates went into self-quarantine. Trump did not. Now Gates has tested negative for the disease. He got a test, and he's back out of quarantine. Because he is Matt Gates, he bypassed federal rules restricting the test to those with symptoms. Gates had no symptoms. Self-quarantines also for Arizona Republican Congressman Paul Gosar and three of his staffers who also attended the conference. Same for George's Doug Collins, each of these men close to the president. And we learned Congressman Mark Meadows, who is now also serving as Trump's White House chief of staff, is also in self-quarantine, having also had contact with the infected attendee, even though he reportedly tested negative. None of these self-quarantined lawmakers are reporting any symptoms. Neither is Texas Congressman Louis Gomer, who's been told he was near the infected CPAC attendee, but Gomert has decided to go back to the House floor without a self-quarantine. At least two Democrats have self-quarantined. California's Julia Brownlee. She did not attend CPAC, of course. She says she met with someone last week who has since tested positive. She has also closed her Capitol Hill office. Democratic Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia says he had dinner with someone who's tested positive, so he too is now self-quarantined. That brings to seven the number of lawmakers we know of exposed to the virus. Even though some of the highest-ranking people in our government were or may have been exposed, the White House says Trump has not been tested for the virus as he continues to downplay the threat. When asked if he's concerned about being two degrees of separation from the infected convention-goer, Trump said, no, I'm not concerned at all, no. Monday morning, he was arriving in Orlando for a fundraiser and shook hands with many of the people there to greet him as he stepped down from Air Force One. Epidemiologists say that a 73-year-old man like Trump would be risking his own health by continuing to go to rallies. When asked if Trump should keep flying to rallies, Trump's Surgeon General dutifully replied that the president is, quote, healthier than I am, even though Jerome Adams is a quarter century younger than Trump. General Adams would later walk back his big TV claim, tweeting, I could have said this better. When asked if he would suspend his campaign rallies, Trump said he had no such plans, adding, we're going to have tremendous rallies. But last night, after his Oval Office address, the Trump campaign announced that two of his upcoming rallies in Colorado and Nevada have been canceled over concern about the spread of coronavirus. In the meantime, the White House is getting more frequent cleanings than it had before. CPAC staffers who are feeling ill are being told to stay home. 
Anyone who attended that convention is being advised to take their temperature twice a day, watching for a fever of 100.4 or higher, difficulty in breathing, or shortness of breath. Iran tried to downplay the virus, only to see dozens of its lawmakers fall ill with the disease, two of whom have died, along with at least seven members of its cabinet falling ill. Hundreds of citizens there have now died from it. China tried to downplay the virus at first, only to see it kill more than 3,000 of its people. Countries that responded quickly to the crisis have slowed the spread of the disease within their borders. One expert says the time for the U.S. to act is now or never. High-ranking government officials around the world have been hit with the virus, now including the French culture minister and Italy's medical chief. The president of the European Parliament is now self-quarantined after a weekend in Italy. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke at a conference in Toronto that was also attended by a then-undiagnosed coronavirus patient. The deputy health minister for Britain has it, and she was just at a conference with Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Chancellor Angela Merkel says she believes that as much as 70% of Germany's population will be infected. It will go away, Trump said again on Tuesday, adding, just stay calm. Everything is working out. In his speech last night, Trump extended the deadline for filing tax returns for some taxpayers. The administration's also considering letting hundreds of thousands of federal employees work from home full-time. But there's some question about whether the government can be run remotely. About 40% of federal employees are eligible to work from home, but quoting one official, this is uncharted territory. The State Department has cut all non-essential travel and recommended that Americans not travel abroad. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden is proposing we spend a half billion to make it possible to vote by mail this fall, just in case. Courthouses across the U.S. are now postponing hearings and barring people who've traveled outside the country recently. A major opioid trial in New York has been postponed. An employee at NASA has tested positive, as has an employee at the Securities and Exchange Commission, prompting NASA and the FEC to become the first government agencies to order their employees to work from home. On Monday, we learned that the head of the New York, New Jersey Port Authority, the man who oversees all travel into New York City, has contracted the COVID-19 illness. Now three TSA agents in California have tested positive. So have two employees working at separate facilities for CBS News. The CBS News Broadcast Center in New York has been shut down. Many employees are working from home. CBS Television News now emanates from Washington, D.C. Its radio broadcasts are now based in Orlando and D.C. You can't spell panic without pandemic. Prison riots broke out across Italy over virus fears. After having just locked down its northern section, Italy quickly locked down its entire populace. All 60 million of its people now need permission to travel. The streets there are empty. Israel announced that everyone entering the country would be screened for the virus, including its own citizens. Saudi Arabia expanded its travel ban to exclude people from nine of its neighboring countries and shut down its schools and universities. The United Nations headquarters in New York is now closed to the general public. The World Trade Organization meetings and the G7 have been canceled or postponed after a staffer at the WTO tested positive. In Vatican City, St. Peter's Square and St. Peter's Basilica are now both closed, 
along with the cafeteria. The grocery store and pharmacy are still open. Here in the States, colleges and universities are taking action, canceling, postponing, and switching to online instruction. Among the schools making these changes, Harvard, Hofstra, Columbia, Princeton, Stanford, Amherst, Barnard, UC Berkeley and San Diego, USC, UCLA, Ohio State, Georgetown, and American universities in D.C., the University of Maryland and Rice in Houston, as well as two schools in Washington State, Seattle University, and the U of Washington. All study abroad programs have been canceled. Tuesday night, police in riot gear clashed with hundreds of students at the University of Dayton as officials ordered students to leave campus. The U.S. Navy is keeping guests out of its upcoming boot camp graduation ceremonies. Veterans Administration's nursing homes are now closed to visitors, affecting some 41,000 veterans. Ohio's decided nursing homes are not the best places to set up their voting booths this year. Now the Los Angeles City Council has canceled its meetings. Canada, Sweden, and Ireland reported their first deaths this week. Germany reported its first two deaths. California reported its second. New Jersey, Wyoming, and North Dakota recorded their first. Iran recorded its 237th death. Italy lost 168 people in just one day. Cases doubled in the Philippines where schools were closed after the number of deaths doubled. The Philippines are virtually locked down now. European leaders called for an emergency stimulus package, while in China, the number of new cases is falling and schools there are reopening and temporary hospitals are closing. China now says that more than 70% of its patients recovered from the COVID-19 illness. The price of hand sanitizer rose to 80 bucks a bottle as store shelves and websites came up empty. The governor of New York State announced that rather than wait around for private enterprise to restock hand sanitizer and to stop the price gouging, the state's prisoners would start making the state's own brand of hand sanitizer at a much lower price and with a floral scent. A thousand gallons a week would go to schools, hospitals, New York City's Metropolitan Transit Authority, to the prisons and to the communities hit hard by the virus. Blue Cross Blue Shield joined other major health insurance companies to guarantee affordable coronavirus testing. The CDC told older Americans to stock up, stay home, and to avoid crowds and to avoid travel, especially those with heart or lung conditions or diabetes. The head of the National Association of Nursing Homes calls coronavirus, quote, an almost perfect killing machine for elderly patients. As more people begin to self-quarantine, CVS pharmacies are waiving their home delivery fees for prescription meds so those who are sick don't go out in public. There was a crackdown, meanwhile, on the claims being made by TV preacher Jim Baker and a half dozen other companies about what their products can supposedly do for coronavirus patients. Baker and the others have been accused of making illegal, unapproved drugs and then making deceptive or scientifically unsupported claims about them. In short, the companies were selling snake oil, including the Jim Baker Show and its so-called Silver Solution. The show had just gotten a letter last week from New York's Attorney General warning the televangelist hustler to stop making misleading claims after video of the sales pitch went viral. Now, the FDA and the Federal Trade Commission are also coming down on Baker and the others. Now... The feds are involved. Salon.com's Bob Seska this week takes a look back at where we've been, where we are now, and where we hope to be headed. Bob? 
Thank you, Buzz. The pressure valves are beginning to leak geysers of steam as national events spiral out of control around us. I'm fairly certain we all feel it, that sense of impending doom pressing down on our spirits while our Democratic leadership in Washington is helpless to stop an administration that's careening wildly out of control. For more than three years, we've observed in shocked panic the seemingly endless catastrophes ejaculating out of the White House, a White House that now more closely resembles metal in a microwave than a functioning administration. Every morning, millions of us wake up to a presidential disaster on Twitter, or the latest video clip of Donald Trump either fumbling a summit meeting, covering up a crime, or going out of his way to shit on a much more capable and reasonable human being on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. It's unnerving and unhealthy, to say the least. And yet, as American citizens, we have no choice but to watch, all the while wondering when the tyranny will stop, if ever. But now, things have changed. While there's hope for a successful election on the horizon, it seems as though the chaos isn't letting go, and indeed tightening its stranglehold. Now there's a global pandemic on the loose, and the federal government, which has been purged of anyone perceived to be disloyal to Trump, doesn't know whether to give us the facts or to pander to the brittle ego of their chief executive. The pandemic and Trump's ungainly response have triggered a bear market on Wall Street, leading to another inevitable recession. Add this into the mix with whatever baggage our personal lives are delivering presently, and chase it all with the impact of the climate crisis, and the tension becomes almost too overwhelming to fully comprehend. And tweets like this aren't helping. About an hour ago, the president tweeted this, quote, The media should view this as a time of unity and strength. We have a common enemy, actually, an enemy of the world, the coronavirus. We must beat it as quickly and safely as possible. There is nothing more important to me than the life and safety of the United States, unquote. At a glance, it looks somewhat innocuous, but it might be one of his most infuriating tweets ever. The raw gaslighting, the tone deafness, the complete lack of self-awareness is almost too infuriating for words. This is the cartoon supervillain who, just this afternoon, refused to answer a question from CNN's Jim Acosta because, the president said, CNN is fake news. This week, Trump tweeted about Crazy Bernie and Sleepy Joe and how the news media is the enemy of the people, how the governor of Washington state, the epicenter of the coronavirus here in the United States, is nothing more than a snake. The worst, most nauseatingly dumb thing about this tweet is that Trump has never once tried to reach out and unify the nation, ever, not even a hint. He's exclusively about the 43 percenters, his red hat cult, and no one else. He's sacrificing his re-election chances by speaking only to his most loyal fanboys. You don't matter to him. None of us do. Truthfully, his fanboys only matter to him because they'll help keep him out of prison by voting for him. If he actually gave a rip about his supporters, he wouldn't treat them like suckers, willing to buy every single one of his 17,000 lies, most of which are directed squarely at them. Americans would generally love some unity right about now, that's true, if only to assuage this nearly four-year anxiety attack. But that unity isn't coming from Trump, and it never, ever will. Indeed, it's becoming clear, as Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders wind their way through the remaining Democratic primaries, that voters are reaching for the restart button on our politics. The rapid, almost shockingly powerful ascendancy of the Joe Biden campaign, combined with unprecedented voter turnout, is signaling to me that Americans want to do exactly what I and others have been demanding, 
We want to utterly humiliate Trump at the ballot box, and a strong majority of us think Biden is the one to do it. Regardless of the candidate, though, it seems as though voters believe that eradicating patient zero in our political pandemic, that's Trump and Trumpism, need to come first. In that regard, voters appear to be insisting that we loop back to where we were four years ago for a do-over, a fresh start. And once that's done, once the culprits who manifested all this damage are brought to justice, only then will we have the energy to tackle ambitious, progressive-leaning legislative agendas. But the bleeding, the hemorrhaging in this case, has to coagulate first and the wounds need to heal before any of that happens. We're starving for the familiar. We're absolutely craving a return to normalcy. It might seem like a low bar, but it's a strikingly important one as we're being churned up in the propellers of the Trump crisis, the coronavirus crisis, the stock market crisis, the climate crisis, and everything in between. This is why so many Democrats have risked illness by waiting in interminable lines to vote for Joe Biden. Yes, there's a good chance that Americans will unify at some point in the not-too-distant future, but it won't be around Trump or his rogues gallery of thugs and henchmen. It'll be around each other as we rescue our democracy from yet another Republican-manufactured shithole. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show there this afternoon. I join Bob there on his Tuesday shows. Once a frontrunner, Elizabeth Warren ended her presidential campaign, and it was down to two white men. There had been six women in what was the most diverse field of candidates in American history, and now there were none. Even after pushing billionaire Mike Bloomberg out of the race, the last woman standing couldn't get the poll numbers, the money, or the votes. The disappointment in that among voting women across the country would likely be remembered by the male nominee. But that's not the nominee's only consideration, and we seem to be getting closer to knowing who that nominee will be. When the latest primary Tuesday arrived, both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden canceled their public rallies out of concern for public safety in the coronavirus pandemic. When they debate in Arizona Sunday night, there will be no public audience, only moderators and TV cameras, along with campaign and debate officials, again, for safety. Biden's upcoming rallies will be held virtually, meaning online. Six more states held primaries and caucuses this week. Bernie Sanders won North Dakota, but Joe Biden won the rest, Idaho, Missouri, Mississippi, and the crucial electoral state of Michigan. Washington State, still several days later, too close to call. Biden managed to widen the gap between himself and Sanders in the number of delegates collected since the start of the primary season. Sanders has failed to capture support from black voters who mostly favor Biden, and his young supporter turnouts are low, while the turnout of older voters is, as usual, high. Even in Michigan's districts with college campuses, Biden beat Sanders. And now, time's running out for Sanders to win more delegates to this summer's nominating convention. It's mathematically possible, but it doesn't seem likely. Despite his losses on Super Tuesday and again this week, Sanders is staying in the race for now. He says he wants to debate Joe Biden. And he will in this Sunday night's televised Democratic debate. Biden, meanwhile, grows more electable in the minds of voters. Voters confident the candidate has legs getting Democrats to vote in a primary and in huge numbers. 
Turnout surged in Michigan and elsewhere, led by black voters and older voters. Biden has now been endorsed by six of the Democrats who've run against him. Klobuchar, Buttigieg, O'Rourke, Booker, Harris, Bloomberg, and Yang. To the disappointment of Sanders supporters, Warren has endorsed neither candidate. Tuesday night, only one candidate appeared before the cameras, and that candidate knew he would need votes from disappointed Bernie voters. Speaking in a sparsely populated room, Biden thanked Sanders supporters for their energy and passion, adding, together we'll defeat Donald Trump. Biden also promised to restore decency, dignity, and honor to the White House in an appeal to voters of all political stripes. The next primaries are this coming Tuesday in Arizona, Florida, Illinois, and Ohio, all four of which Sanders lost to Hillary in 2016. Although he still has powerful leverage on the Democratic Party, Thursday brought mostly bad news to Bernie Sanders. It brought very bad news to Donald Trump. Trump got impeached trying to get a foreign country to investigate Joe Biden, and now Biden, for now at least, a likely Democratic nominee. This is not 2016 anymore. There is no Hillary this time, and Biden's running with greater strength than had Clinton, based on the numbers so far. Biden won by bigger margins in Michigan than Clinton had, while Bernie's base shrunk. In other election news, the Russian parliament has changed the country's constitution to allow Vladimir Putin to remain president virtually for life. On his recommendation, Russian lawmakers eliminated term limits on the Russian presidency. Putin's time was set to run out four years from now, but his stay has been extended for 12 more years. He would be 79 when he left office, assuming his reign wasn't extended again. If he serves it out, Putin will have led Russia for even longer than Joseph Stalin. Putin now joins China's Xi Jinping and Turkey's Erdogan in greatly extending their terms of office, an idea also kicked around by Donald Trump. The Mueller report was back in the news this week. It came up in the courtroom of U.S. District Judge Reggie Walton. Judge Walton is hearing a Freedom of Information lawsuit brought by a watchdog group and BuzzFeed News about the still mostly hidden Mueller report. A week ago today, the judge accused Barr of a lack of candor in his release of the redacted Mueller report last year. He called Barr's summary of the report distorted and misleading, citing inconsistencies. The judge raised questions about the redactions Barr made in the Mueller report. He accused Barr of creating a one-sided narrative of the report, one that tended to clear the president of wrongdoing. And that, said Judge Walton, quote, calls into question Attorney General Barr's credibility and the credibility of the entire Justice Department. A federal judge was questioning the honesty of the nation's attorney general and the judge has ordered an independent review of the entire unredacted Mueller report to see if these questions about Barr's credibility can be answered. After Barr's advanced summary of the report, Mueller himself wrote that Barr's summary, quote, did not fully capture its content, nature, and substance. Judge Walton, by the way, was appointed by Republican President George W. Bush, so Trump cannot call him an Obama judge. And in a different courtroom on Tuesday of this week, we learned we might soon see more of the Mueller report, specifically the secreted evidence from the grand juries that assisted Mueller in his investigation. 
On a two-to-one vote, the D.C. Court of Appeals upheld a lower court's decision that House investigators should see the information that had been redacted from Bob Mueller's final report. The Justice Department can appeal this decision either in that same court or before the U.S. Supreme Court. The House wants to see Trump's written answers to Mueller's questions, and it wants to further investigate obstruction of justice by the president. House investigators have said all along that Trump could be impeached a second time for his words and deeds during the Mueller investigation. The watchdog group Public Citizen has gotten hold of documents showing $157,000 in previously unreported payments from the taxpayer-owned Secret Service to the Trump Organization's resorts. These newly found receipts bring the total collected by Trump's company from the Secret Service to $628,000 since he took office from the start of 2017. Those are just the ones we know of. Other charges remain hidden. In at least one instance, Trump billed the Secret Service at the rate of $650 per room per night. In no case could the Washington Post reporters find that the agents had been charged the 50 bucks a night rate as claimed by the president's son, Eric Trump. Dozens of agents have followed Trump to his property for about 600 nights. At the start of the Trump presidency, the White House chief of staff was former Republican Party executive Reince Priebus, who did not survive the power struggles in the early days of the administration. He got fired. Then came General John Kelly, a pro-Trumper, but a disciplinarian who fired some of Trump's favorite people and who challenged the president as he tried to obstruct the Mueller probe. So Kelly got fired. Trump's third chief of staff, make that acting chief of staff, was Mick Mulvaney, who was already running Trump's Office of Management and Budget. Suddenly, Mulvaney had two jobs, which became intertwined in the Ukraine scandal, and may have proved too much, since it was Mulvaney who admitted to reporters the quid pro quo. That certainly didn't help Mulvaney's standing with Trump, who never really trusted Mulvaney in the first place and only kept him on as acting chief, even though it was the job Mulvaney had always wanted. Mulvaney found out he would be fired after his replacement had already been offered the job. Mulvaney's OMB job would now go to his deputy, Mulvaney was then assigned as special envoy to Northern Ireland, down to just one job now. Mick Mulvaney is an Irish name, so sure, why not? The new guy, the fourth guy, is Congressman Mark Meadows of South Carolina, one of Trump's attack dogs in Congress, leaping to Trump's defense during the impeachment and talking with the president a half dozen times a day during that House inquiry. Meadows also has two jobs for now, but he'd already announced he would vacate his congressional seat by not running for re-election this year. Meadows sees as one of his strong points his ability to, quote, get things done under the radar. Acquaintances say his strong suit is his ability to consider all angles, to think outside the box, and to be proactive instead of reactive. A judge has ruled that Trump's assignment of Ken Cuccinelli to the administration's top immigration post was illegal and that, therefore, several of Cuccinelli's orders to tighten asylum rules must be set aside. In his 55-page ruling, District Judge Randolph Moss said the White House violated the Federal Vacancies Reform Act when the president chose Cuccinelli last June to just head the Citizenship and Immigration Services. Among the Cuccinelli orders being set aside 
shortening by up to two-thirds the time asylum seekers get to prepare for their credible fear interviews, in which immigration officials try to determine if the asylum seeker poses any kind of a threat to the U.S. The other Cuccinelli order set aside almost completely kept asylum officers from granting extensions. The Trump administration, of course, will appeal Judge Moss's ruling. Also in the past week, Trump announced that he would again nominate Congressman John Ratcliffe as our next director of national intelligence. Now, the first time Trump nominated Ratcliffe, it was rejected because Ratcliffe wasn't qualified, having no experience in the intelligence field. He still hasn't any. But he, too, is one of Trump's attack dogs in Congress, another staunch defender during the impeachment. Trump first nominated Ratcliffe, promising he would rein in U.S. intelligence agencies that Trump said had run amok. But this time, it appears Trump has a different motive for nominating Ratcliffe. Trump legally had to nominate someone by March 11th, but making a nomination, he stopped the clock. That allows Trump to keep acting intelligence director Richard Grinnell for up to seven more months, right up to the election. Abigail Spanberger is a former CIA officer, and in the run-up to the 2018 midterms, her campaign officials became suspicious of an intern named Richard Seddon. They were right to be suspicious, and they were right to fire him. Seddon was fired the year before from the big American Federation of Teachers Union, where he secretly recorded local union leaders and gathered as much damaging inside information as he could there. Richard Seddon, you see, is a former British spy who now works for Eric Prince, who's the brother of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and the former head of the notorious Blackwater Security Service. Mr. Seddon is a former MI6 officer, British intelligence. The New York Times reports that Eric Prince has been rounding up former U.S. and British spies to infiltrate not only unions and Democratic campaigns, but media outlets and other groups they consider hostile to the Trump administration. The work of Project Veritas, as Prince calls it, includes using secret audio and video recordings to conduct stings on liberal organizations. Project Veritas got a $20,000 donation in 2015 from the Trump Foundation. The American Federation of Teachers is now suing Mr. Seddon for illegal eavesdropping. Harvey Weinstein goes to prison, virus or allergy, and all about beavers in the final segment after this. This newscast is free to you, but not free to make. If you'd like to help in this independent journalistic effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some very kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up blocker to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and very helpful to do so. Whatever you do, however you've done it, thank you. There were fewer carbon emissions this year from the world's electricity-generating plants. Carbon emissions from those plants down by 2% last year, the biggest drop since 1990 when the move away from coal began. 3% less of our electricity came from coal-fired plants this year, even while China uses more coal. Some of the decrease in coal use, however, has been compensated 
by the use of natural gas, yet another fossil fuel. Because of global warming, the allergy season started in February this year. Health officials want you to know the difference between allergy symptoms and symptoms of the new coronavirus. Coronavirus patients almost never have itchy, red, watery eyes or sneezing, sore throats or running noses. Allergy victims almost never have a fever, chills or body aches. While both the virus and common allergies can cause coughing, COVID-19 patients experience far more shortness of breath. Know your symptoms and breathe easier. The flu, which has killed more people in the U.S. this year than the new coronavirus, is on the wane now, and a universal vaccine for the flu is on the way. New cases of influenza are down for the third straight week, so it appears this year's flu season is winding down. At least 34 million of us were stricken this year, with over a third of a million people going to hospitals, and 20,000 people died from it, including hundreds of children who don't seem much affected by coronavirus. There are, as we've come to learn, various strains of the flu, making it harder to target each year's strains with just the right vaccines. Progress is being made, however, on a universal vaccine to protect us all from all forms of influenza. It is a single-dose medicine that lasts longer than the vaccines we've been using. Over the past 10 years, drug prices have shot up three times faster than inflation, according to a study at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Pharmaceutical Policy. The asthma and allergy medicine known as Singulair will come with a black box warning from now on. That's the warning placed on drugs whose side effects include a significant risk of suicide. Singulair has previously been linked to depression and nightmares in children. The founder of the conservative disinformation website known as InfoWars has been arrested in Austin, Texas for allegedly driving while intoxicated. Alex Jones drew the attention of police after his wife called to report a domestic dispute. Police report a strong odor of alcohol on Jones and that he was unable to complete sobriety tests. Jones says he and his wife had just had a little sake and that he drove to, quote, get away from his wife. Austin is where Jones does his conspiracy theory-fueled radio show. He's currently being sued by the parents of a victim of the Sandy Hook massacre for using his show to claim that the slaughter of young school children was a hoax and that the grieving parents were actually paid actors. Harvey Weinstein has received a virtual life sentence for sexually assaulting women. The 67-year-old disgraced Hollywood mogul has been sentenced to 23 years in the New York case against him involving two women, Weinstein faces additional charges in Los Angeles. Quoting the judge in New York, rape is not just one moment. It is forever. You liked his work, even if you weren't quite sure how to pronounce his name. Max von Sydow has died at age 90. Besides being one of the best actors of his generation, he went on to become a pop culture star through those Star Wars movies, Game of Thrones, and of course, The Simpsons. He was the priest in The Exorcist. As a young, tall, blonde Swedish actor, he was most closely tied to fellow Swede director Ingmar Bergman. In Bergman's The Seventh Seal, von Sydow's character played a chess game with death. But another animated movie was on top in theaters this week. Onward made 40 million bucks, followed by The Invisible Man, The Way Back, Sonic the Hedgehog, and The Call of the Wild. 
For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click gently but firmly on the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. After paying $49 billion for DirecTV just five years ago, AT&T is beginning to shut it down. The satellite TV service shrank from 20 million subscribers to just 4 million, thanks to cord cutting. Another 6 million Americans cut their cable and satellite cords this year. DirecTV will still be around for rural customers, but AT&T has decided to stop marketing it. A U.S. appeals court has ruled that Led Zeppelin did not steal the opening of Stairway to Heaven from another band. The guitar opening to Stairway sounds remarkably like a mostly unknown song that preceded it, copyrighted by a band called Spirit. A lower court had ruled two years ago that Led Zeppelin had stolen the chord progression, but members Robert Plant and John Paul Jones testified that the sequence had, quote, been around forever. Katy Perry, meanwhile, is appealing the verdict against her over her song, Dark Horse. If you love beavers, you should see Lori Gongaware of Chesterfield, Virginia. Lori started collecting beaver-related items in 1996, and it spun out of control. She now has a collection of beaver memorabilia totaling nearly 1,500 pieces. I got everything, says Lori. I got bottle openers, coffee cups, stampers, pencil sharpeners, even a tattoo. She wants to be in the Book of World Records, but the Guinness people have told her she needs a qualified witness. For my particular record, they wanted a specialist witness, says Lori, who called in the local wildlife center to verify her 1,456 pieces. The witness had to be somebody who knew about beavers, explains Lori. The nice thing about collecting beavers, she adds, it's not like collecting teddy bears. With teddy bears, there's so many of them, but beavers, she points out, they're so hard to find. As the United Press International tells it, an angler out ice fishing at White Potato Lake called 911 to report a skunk wearing a soup can like a helmet. Wisconsin wildlife officials were called in and removed the can from the skunk's head. The wildlife officers were able to escape getting sprayed, but they're going to have to throw away the box they used to capture it. There was a strong, skunky smell on the cash money used by a Louisiana woman to pay her jail bond, but that had nothing to do with a malodorous mammal. It was the strong odor of marijuana, according to police. That makes sense. She had been arrested on drug charges. Ohio Highway Patrol troopers pulled over this woman for weaving. She told the officers she was weaving because she was trying to change the station on her car radio. It was more likely a sampling of some of the drugs in her car, 100 doses of LSD, 184 grams of Coke, 11 hits of ecstasy, and other drugs and paraphernalia. Meanwhile, back in Louisiana, a Baton Rouge couple has been arrested for stealing beer, $1,000 worth of beer. 30-somethings Ashley and Matthew Forbes took turns going into various Target stores, filling a cart with six packs, and slipping out the door without paying. They were arrested Sunday when Matt allegedly also tried to steal an electric drill. In Athens, Alabama, a law firm has been caught fibbing about why their client needed a delay for his trial. The client is longtime sheriff Mike Blakely, who's facing felony charges of stealing campaign donations and abusing the power of his office to squeeze money out of banks and even his own employees. Lawyers for the sheriff of three dozen years at first claimed their client 
couldn't make the trial on time on account of his coronavirus illness. The judge didn't buy it, and despite Blakely's multiple trips to the ER, he tested negative for the virus and for the flu and for walking pneumonia. The lawyers assured the judge they weren't trying to pull a fast one, saying there were apparently several kinds of coronaviruses, but all we had to go on was what we knew at the time. The makers of Tito's Vodka this week felt compelled to announce that vodka of any brand does not contain enough alcohol to sanitize hands or surfaces. That statement was apparently prompted after a customer tweeted that Tito's Vodka helped him make some hand sanitizer. If it was a joke, Tito's wasn't laughing, tweeting, Per the CDC, hand sanitizer needs to contain at least 60% alcohol. Tito's is 40% alcohol and therefore does not meet the current recommendation. The grain alcohol beverage known as Everclear, however, at 120 proof, does meet the 60% standards. The more you know. And the search for toilet paper during the coronavirus uncertainty has led to this. In East Yorkshire, England, an arcade owner has removed all of the toys from his claw machine and replaced them with rolls of toilet paper. An arcade owner in Devon, England, filled his claw machine with bottles of hand sanitizer. And finally, you may have heard this week about 100-year-old Ruth Bryant of Roxborough, North Carolina, who celebrated by marking going to jail off her bucket list. There were a string of amusing nuggets to this story about how deputies cuffed her to her walker and how she playfully kicked at one of the officers to try to resist arrest. There was the deputy's joke that she should be careful of his bad knees on that kick and her retort that he should be careful of both of hers. Miss Bryant was only in jail long enough to try on the jumpsuit and get a mug shot before she went back to her nursing home birthday party to enjoy some cake. And you may have heard some truly funny jokes about this story, but you may not have heard the whole story, which includes perhaps the funniest thing of all. What you may not have heard... 100-year-old Ruth Bryant was arrested on a charge of indecent exposure. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.